The rest of you turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. As we have yet another very long, long passage in Daniel to read this morning. Hey, by the way, I'm, well, actually, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say I'm, I'm leaving on vacation this afternoon. But if, um, oh, wow, someone's way too excited for my vacation. Um, <laughs> be gone. Um, hey, I, I understand my, my, my comment very briefly about Israel is confusing for some of you. You grew up, you grew up in traditions that state that Israel is very central. Um, and uh, if you want to talk about that more theologically, it's not our purpose this morning. But um, I'd be happy to meet with you and share with you. Um, some things out of Romans and how we're supposed to view Israel theologically and politically. According to God's word, I don't know what to do in regards to the geopolitical stuff, but according to God's word, how we should think about them as Christians. All right, Daniel chapter 5. I'm going to read again the whole passage, 31 verses. Read along in your own Bibles. It's on the screen for you as I read out loud. King Belshazzar, not Nebuchadnezzar, so we got a new one. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. And then the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him, and King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah? I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and the enchanters have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. 
And then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. This is what we read last week. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart. Though you knew this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver, of gold, and bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your very breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored." Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene means God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And Perez, your kingdom is divided into the Medes and the Persians. And then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck. And a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third rule in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean, the king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. Well, you've heard of the phrase, uh, the writing is on the wall. Uh, It's an expression that suggests that... um, well, doom is coming, uh, that something is imminent or inevitable. The writing is on the wall. It could be an employee could see the writing was on the wall that he was going to be fired, and so he packed up his stuff and went home. It's imminent. It's a doom that's coming. And the original writing on the wall phrase was told to Belshazzar, and here is what the writing of the wall was. The judgment of God is coming. It is near. In fact, it is here. That is the writing on the wall. Now, as an aside, I want to address something here that you may not be aware of in regards to this passage and this idea of a guy named Belshazzar as the king over Babylon. For years, this passage was the place, the primary place, where scholars who wanted to disrupt and undercut the the Bible as being God's word and being truthful would say, we have found no such history of a king named Belshazzar. We can't find him anywhere. There is no evidence in archaeology or in the written histories of this guy. This is just another place in the Bible that we have a fabricated story in order to tell these parables. But but until one day, in the early part of of the 20th century, there was a guy, a scholar from the British Museum named John George Taylor, Not knowing what he was about to solve, the puzzle came upon a tower and dug it out of the sand and found 2,300 old cylinders with cuneiform writing on them. And there in that cuneiform writing was an account of Belshazzar, son of Nabonidus, 
fourth in the line under fourth Nebuchadnezzar, fourth in the line of Babylon rule after Nebuchadnezzar. Now understand the history of Nebuchadnezzar. There's three Nebuchadnezzars. There's the first one, then there's the second one who takes Israel and enslaves it. That's where we first begin. The Nebuchadnezzar we read about a number of times, and then there's Nabonidus. Nabonidus comes to power after a coup, a palace coup, coup, and Nabonidus takes on the name Nebuchadnezzar. Nabonidus, though, does not worship the gods of Babylon, and so he creates a new city outside of Babylon from which he rules and reigns, and so he puts his son, Belshazzar, over the religious ruling city of Babylon in his place as the second in rule over the empire. Nabonidus is probably who we actually read about. He was the Nebuchadnezzar we read about last week, his father. And Belshazzar is the second in rule, which is why later on he can only offer third in rule because he is not first, he's second, and therefore the highest rule he can offer is third. And so what we have here is the Bible has been shown to be right once again, that the great scholars for hundreds and hundreds of years who looked at the Bible and mocked and scoffed it for its history, and it has been shown to be right. Now, why bring this up in regards to this idea of God's judgment and the writing on the wall? Because we have the idea, and there is maybe very few things that is going to be judged, bring judgment upon us than the idea that we are the people who get to judge God's word as opposed to God's word being the thing that judges us. That we have essentially say to the word of God and to God himself, I will determine what is right and wrong about you and about your word. What I like about you and what I don't like about you as opposed to the word of God and God's judgment entering our lives and God determining this is what is right and wrong about you. So we've been talking about countercultural living in the series. What is it like to live in an exile land, to live in a land that is not Christian, to live in a land that you have to live counterculturally than the ebbs and flows? And understand this, that if we're going to be people who are countercultural, there are few things more countercultural than believing that there is a God of wrath and judgment coming. That is not necessarily liked in our culture, in our world. The God of our making, the God of our making, the one that we would create, he would, well, he'd be smart, certainly. And perhaps he would be grandfatherly or professorial, a cheerful sight for sure. And to have, he would have a sense of humor, a lot, enough to look down on us human beings and to be amused by our failings and our sins as humans who just can't get, the thing, get things right. That we're just kind of a colossal, you know, human Inspector Crusoe stumbling through life. The God of our making, at least, what we think we would want from God is one who has nothing to do with wrath and judgment. Well, tell that to the people of Israel today. You see, the last, the God of the Daniel, the God of Daniel is a God of judgment. It is the God of the Bible. He is the God who brings judgment. And we're going to work through this story in three headings. And each heading has something to do with God and his judgment in the earth. We're going to move. Now, here's how we're going to go. Let me give you kind of just like a little bit of a literary approach to what we're doing this morning. What we're going to do is we're going to begin these three headings by the outer parts of the passage, the beginning and the end. We're beginning and the end. And then we're going to come in a little bit and we're going to see the judgment of God in regards to this writing that's on the wall and Daniel's interpretation of it. And then we're going to end this morning with Daniel's confrontation uh, with Belshazzar as our last point. So that's where we're going. We're not necessarily following things linearly, but I think we're following things from a literary perspective, these outer and bringing it in, the structure of this passage. 
So the first thing I want you to see, the first heading about God's judgment is here has to do with the party of the arrogance and the coming of God's judgment. Let me give you some context where we are in the book of Daniel. Remember last time, Daniel in verses 36 and 37, it said this. This is how the the previous chapter ends. At the same time, my reason returned to me. This is Nebuchadnezzar giving a testimony. This is Belshazzar's daddy. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to to humble. And then understand, if you're reading the book of Daniel, yes, you had a week-long break. There is no break. We now go right into this next story. New king, new name, no introduction. Here's Belshazzar, gave a great banquet, wine, and he orders the goblets from God's Yahweh's temple, and they drink from them, and they praise the gods of gold and silver and bronze. And the way Daniel presents this is meant to be an abrupt turn in the story. He's, his own daddy has just said, God humbles the proud and the arrogant. And then what do we have? The very next phrase is the story about a king who brings out God's utensils that are meant to worship him. He takes them out and with with this kind of wild, drunken, sexualized party, they drink to their own gods out of the vessels that are meant for the worship of Yahweh. Now that is an affront and that is an act of arrogance. And so we get no segue, no introduction. It is clear that Daniel cares less about the details of the history here as he is saying that these are arrogant people and this is why God's judgment is coming on them. This is a particularly poignant moment in actually the history of the world. If you know anything about ancient history, you see what is about to happen is Babylon is about to fall. And the Medo-Persian army, it's two particular collections of ethnic groups of people are coming, have joined together. They are from Iran. Babylon is in Iraq, if that uh, connects some dots for you. And they, they are coming in. The Medo-Persian army is now at the gates. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar or Nabonidus, Belshazzar's daddy, has already been defeated. The vast majority of the Babylonian army has been defeated out on the plains. And now, at this point in history, the Medo-Persian army now stands outside the gates ready to create a siege or to storm the walls of Babylon. And in, in response to that, what does Belshazzar do? He throws a party. Now, why, why would he do that? What, what he's doing here is he's trying to reckon with what, the disaster that may be about to come down upon him. And many of us, we have different ways of dealing with the, the, the stresses of a potential disaster coming upon us. Let me see if I can explain it this way. Some of you remember, now many of you were not born, but some of you remember 1999 and what was about what we were very afraid of was about to happen on New Year's Eve 1999 as it went into 2000. There was this issue with computers. We had just really begun using them for about 10 years. All we really knew was Atari and, a, and the Oregon Trail on our computers. But there was a lot of things that were run on these computers. And we found this glitch that was like, oh no, what's going to happen when it goes from 99 on our computers to double zero on our computers? Everything is going to go haywire. And it's going to bring down civilization. The power grids are going to fail. The food supply chains are going to break down. Money would evaporate from the banks. There would be gas shortages. And it would, utter chaos would happen. And there were various ways in which people responded to Y2K. And some of you knew how these, how these people responded. Some of you knew the people 
who were the, um, let's say they were the kind of the, the end earthers. They were the people who, you know, gathered up 10,000 rounds of an AR-15 uh, ammo or, or created a bunker in their backyard or had, you know, 100 years worth of MREs somewhere in their house. And so they stockpiled in order to, to kind of create this, this, get themselves ready for this chaos that was about to happen. What, what did other people do? Well, they did what you always do on New Year's Eve. They threw a party. Now, kids, have you ever heard of the phrase... We're going to party like it's 1999. I'm connecting some amazing historical dots for some of you right now, and which just light bulbs are going on around the room. We partied like 1999. Why? Because we thought the end might be, the earth might be ending the next day. And so we said, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There are various reasons why scholars believe that Belshazzar threw a drunken party at this moment. It could be that, yes, it's the eat, drink, be merry mentality. Some believe he's simply trying to coalesce his nobles and go, hey, guys, don't kick me out of power. We got we to gotta unify in this moment as we face the Medo-Persian army. This is, you know, and so let's have a party. I think it was simply what the text, at least the text says, is just a brazen act of utter arrogance and defiance. To say, yes. There's an army at my gates, and I can party in the face of it. Now, understand that Belshazzar had great reason for some confidence. We talked about um, the walls of Babylon last week, but he has a false sense of security. You see, Babylon had a, at this point now has 350-foot-high walls in various places. It is now as thick as 87 feet across. This is a, there is no war machine in the ancient world that was going to be able to break in to Babylon. How could any army break in? They couldn't do it. And so what were they going to have to do? They were going to have to create a siege and starve the people of Babylon. But this is another reason why they were confident. They prepared a siege, but the walled city of Babylon was so great and so large that within the city of Babylon, there were large pastures in which they could have cattle and sheep, which means this, they could feed themselves meat for many years. They were, it was a self-sustaining city. And not only that, but you may have, may have heard of one of the great wonders of the world. It's called the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. And while we're on those hanging gardens, it wasn't simply flowers. It was fruits and vegetables. In other words, this, there is no city perhaps in all of history that is ready to sustain a siege and can carry on for year upon year upon year. And therefore, there is reason for confidence that Belshazzar has. But understand that the shape of Belshazzar's arrogance here. In the face of an army that is coming, he hides behind his walls. And then what else does he use to ignore the realities of what's going on outside the gates? What gives his heart soul and soul comfort and significance in this moment? Did you see it? Read it. You're going to read along in verses 2 and 4. Just look at that. I'm just going to tell you what it is. I'm not going to read it again. He turns to three things. That all of human history we've looked to 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 give us a sense of security in the face of the troubles of life. One, he calls in the wives and the concubines. Now, listen, if you're married, you don't bring in your mistresses unless you think you're having a really good time. And that apparently is what they're doing. What does he turn to? He turns to romance and sexual pleasure as one way to kind of ignore what's going on around him. Then he brings out the spoils of war, the gold and the silver and the treasures from the temple in Jerusalem. What is that? 
Ah, let's remember our great successes as the people of Babylon. This is my, your vocation and looking at your successes and your power and your ability, the trophies of life in which you go, these are the things that make me significant. And then what does he do last? They use those same utensils and they use it not only just to mock the God of Israel, Yahweh, but then they do it to worship their own gods. What are they turning to there? Religion. And these are the things that men have always turned to. Romance and sexual pleasure, power and success and achievement, or religion in order to help us forget that we have a judgment that is coming and that it is imminent for us. Here's a man looking down his fears by running to the very things that all men have always tried to do. Blaise Pascal said that the most consistent reaction to unpleasant thoughts, like the, pleasant, like the unpleasant thought of death and mortality, is the, the unpleasant thoughts about mortality is distracting themselves with amusement or by trying to find something from which they can extract purpose when death makes everything purposeless. And so what does he have facing him? He has facing impossible death. The enemy is at the gates, but he turns to these these things. We can't look at the judgment that is coming in the eye and therefore we'd rather not talk about it. If there's a God who rules and reigns of this world, we don't like to talk about death because it means that there's an end to this life and we have to deal with some very unsettling questions about ourselves. And so what we'd rather do is simply distract ourselves with religiosity or trying to build our achievements or romance, all these are ways to try to create some significance, but also just simply to blind us to what is coming. But despite all of our distraction, despite our arrogant attempts to find meaning and purpose in life apart from God, death and judgment is still coming. You could ignore it all the way to death's door itself, but it's coming for you. The judgment cannot be pushed off. You may have built your walls of security and your achievements and your romance and your religiosity very high, but God's judgment always gets in. You see, Belshazzar learns this. At the very end of the passage, what what does God say? This very night you will lose your life and it'll be given over to the Medo-Persian army and history confirms this. Here's what we know from history. What did the Persians do? They couldn't break in, break through the walls. They're too big. They couldn't do a siege. Babylon was too self-sustaining. So what did they do? By the way, Babylon had the Euphrates River run right through it, so they had a water supply. And there was their downfall. What the Medo-Persian army did is they, they actually built a dam and had the waters of the Euphrates River extend out such that the, after the dam, the waters lowered enough that they were able to walk in waist-high water underneath the, the areas where the, where the river entered into the, the gates of the city and they entered up under the wall and that very night entered into Babylon and slaughtered the king. What do we learn from this? If there is no human wall that is so high and no human accomplishment that is so great that it is secure against the judgment of God, what have you used to try to build your wall to ignore the fact that death and judgment is coming? Your wall is probably not built of brick or stone, but it may be a wall built up of your own good deeds or a wall built up of how loved you are or the wall built up by your accomplishments. The king is at the gates and the kingdom of God and the judgment of of God is at the gates. Are you ready for it? It's coming, ready or not. So that's the first thing we see. 
we move into the story. Here we see the finger of God and the pronouncement of judgment. This is verses 5 through 9 and verses 24 through 27. We see the finger of God comes and writes on the wall. And then in verse 24 and 27, Daniel shares the meaning of the words that God writes there. First, let's just look at the finger of God. This is not the first time that the finger of God is referenced in the Bible. For example, in uh, Exodus chapter 8, when the, God is doing these, these plagues to try to convince Pharaoh to release the people of Israel, the magicians of Egypt are trying to do the same exact plagues. It's kind of a, a, a mono a mono between God's um, uh, miracles and their miracles. And they reach a certain point where they cannot keep up anymore. And the Egyptians of Egypt say this. They say this, this act, this, this miracle is by the very finger of God. Exodus also describes the commandments, the very Ten Commandments. You know, they put them on the stone, that those commandments are written by the finger of God. And then finally, in Psalm chapter 8, we see that all creation is made by the finger of God. In other words, what has the Bible said so far about this finger of God? The finger of God displays his power that is greater than all the magicians and the wise men of the world. The finger of God displays that he is the lawgiver, sovereign over all things. And the finger of God reveals that he is the creator and the maker of the world. Your life breath is from him. It is the finger of God. He is not distant. He is writing his act on the world. That's the finger of God. And how does Belshazzar respond? Well, if you saw, um, if we were here today, and suddenly a human hand was on the wall writing things that you didn't understand, I'd say you'd be at least weirded out. (laughs) Asking what kind of wine was already being served or what was in the wine. What does it say? It describes describes Belshazzar in actually very comical forms, doesn't it? He goes pale. Three times we're told that his color changes. He's going blanche and his knees knock. Right? It's something out of a cartoon, right? When Bugs Bunny is doing this and his, his teeth are chattering. That, in fact, actually, in, in the language here in the, in, in the Hebrew, <laughs> the scholars go, that you read in commentaries, they go to great lengths to show you that Daniel's actually trying to tell us that Belshazzar is wetting himself. That's how scared he is. And in other words, the thin veneer of arrogance and confidence is erased in a moment, and we see how small Belshazzar actually feels how insecure he actually feels inside. You see, we often, our pride, think we're doing just fine between us and God. I feel secure. I feel have purpose and I feel significant until God the judge grows near. And then there's a clarification about where he stands and where you stand. And so in response to when God's finger shows up, we, we quake. What did the people of God do when the finger of God showed up to give them the Ten Commandments? They told Moses, you go up, we're going to stay down here. Thank you very much. When the glory of God comes down in Isaiah chapter 6, how does God's man, Isaiah, uh, uh, say that he felt? He said, my body melted. In other words, he just crumbled. Nothing worked anymore. And in fact, even Jesus, when he shows up, he stills the wind and the rain. Peter goes, I need you to leave, please. This power is more than I can handle. This scares me. But no one, fig- no one can figure out what the, the finger has written, though. 
So the finger shows up and everybody's scared, but no one can figure out what it says. And so verses 24 and 27, Daniel is brought out of cobwebs. Daniel's probably in his 80s by this point. They call him back into service and he comes out and he says, these are the words it says, many, many tackle parson. Literally what these words are designating the weight of coins, the weight of coins or agricultural products. The weights are minna or shekel and parson which means a half shekel or a half parse or a half minna. Then Daniel, Daniel doesn't provide the raw data of the words. He then interprets them, and we see that interpretation in verses 26 to 28, and this I will read. This is the interpretation of the matter. Minna, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. 27, Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting, and Perez, your kingdom is divided, and give it to the Medes and the Persians. Mena, Mena, your days are numbered. The days for all of us are numbered, and death is judgment are coming. But this, is ref- this refers to an imminence. It is here. You have no longer to wait, Belshazzar. It's now or never. Tekel, you have been weighed and found wanting. Belshazzar, you're a fraud. You have propped yourself up as the king of the world or the man that you think you are, but you're not. You are a vapor. And a veneer, God has given your, all your life and your positions. He's given those things to you, but you have acted like you took them all yourself and you are a God. And you have fallen short. God has given you all these gifts and you have not used them in the way that you ought. You know, the New Testament has a verse about this. You may have heard of it. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what that verse is saying is this, that God has given you a body and breath. He has given you life and skills and talents and provided for you. And how have you used the life that he has given you? For your kingdom, to build your walls, or for him? If the balance is set on the scale and God is on one side of the scale and you're on the other, guess what? That bad boy has fallen quickly and you're getting catapulted right off the scale itself. We are small and weightless. And therefore, the last word of pronouncement comes, the judgment. Parson or Perez, your kingdom is done. It will be taken to you. It will be divided between the Medes and the Persians. For what is Scripture's verdict on all of us? In the book of Romans, Paul declares this. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, and there is none righteous. No one, no one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside and become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And therefore, what are our wages? Death. The judgment of death. And so that night, the very enemies of Belshazzar enter into the city and take his life as the very judgment of God. But the ultimate finger of God, the ultimate thing finger of God in the writing on the wall is found in Jesus. He is the king who has invaded the kingdoms of this world. You see, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus is casting out demons. And you may know this because Abraham Lincoln uses it in one of his speeches. But, uh, the, the, the Pharisees come to him and he's, he's casting out demons and, and, and they come and they go, look, oh man, he must be working for the kingdom of the evil one. And Jesus goes, what? Are you a bunch of idiots? Why would the devil, if I work for the devil, why would I, he have me be casting out the very, his very army out of people? He said, a kingdom cannot stand, divided against itself cannot stand. But then he says this, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this, my arrival, I am the king at the head of the army. 
Who leads the kingdom of God into this world? Jesus does. And when he comes, he puts an end to the evil in this world. He brings justice and goodness. You see, Jesus is the king and he brings the kingdom of God. And for those who are set free by the kingdom of God, the power of evil, that, that, that has been a part of their lives, that has been eradicated. And the kingdom of God enters in. That's what he's doing when he removes demons. The kingdom of God enters their lives. And this is what the Jesus has done in your life. The king has entered in and he's bringing his kingdom to bear in your life. You see, the Medes and the Persians enter into Babylon and it's a new kingdom is taking hold. But the kingdom of Jesus Christ is a new kingdom that is setting up residence in this world and he is at your door and he is knocking and saying, the kingdom of God is here. And I'm here to enter in to eradicate the evil rulers that have ruled in your city. I'm here to be the king of your life. I've been here to set you free. Will you bow and receive my kingship or will you fight? And that leads us to our third point in heading. And that's the messenger of God and the warning of judgment. This is all that middle portion of 10 through 23. The middle portion is this crisis and confrontation between Daniel and Belshazzar. The writing is on the wall, but no one understands it or can make sense of it. And so Belshazzar's mother, the queen, comes out and she says, hey, bud, son, you know, your dad learned about these things. There's this guy named Daniel. You might want to call him up. And so they call Daniel up and he brings the message of God. And as Daniel interprets this message, he explains the nature of Belshazzar's sin. You remember what he does? He comes out and he gives the history and he retells the story of Nebuchadnezzar. And then he says this, then in verse 22 and 23, but you have not humbled yourself. You've exalted yourself against heaven. You have taken the vessels meant for God into your hand, but your very breath is in the hand of God. In other words, he's saying, you have dishonored God with your life. You have worshiped other gods. You have mocked God. And you thought, I could take the vessels of Yahweh in my very hand. But let me remind you, actually, your very life breath is in his hand. Now, here's the question, though. Why the history review? Why, why the review of chapter 4 of Daniel? I mean, you could have just gotten right to it. Listen, Belshazzar, I don't have time. I'm old. My, I only got, you know... I gotta say, and I gotta go quickly. Us old guys, we don't wanna waste time. The, the, the drinking out of God's vessels for the worship of the gods, that's wrong, you're judged, might drop. But it gives a history lesson first, why? What's he saying to Belshazzar? You should have known better. You should have known better. The reason why judgment is now upon you is because God has sent his warnings. God has given you opportunity to repent. God has warned you. And he's saying to Belshazzar, you are out excuse because you have seen the hand of God at work in this world. You have seen him humble your father. You have heard your own father worship God. Belshazzar remembers well. But what has he done in the face of what God has done to his father? He's hardened his heart. The 19th century philosopher Hegel once said that the only thing that we can learn from history is that we've learned nothing from history. Now that's a rather cynical statement, but there is a fundamental truth about Belshazzar. He has learned nothing from his father. He's learned nothing from the previous generations. And this brings the application for a people who are seeking to live counterculturally. Will you learn? 
Think about where, who this original audience is, and here I want to connect the dots. The original audience is the people of Israel as they're coming out of exile. Why were they in exile in the first place? Because they had been arrogant, and they had worshipped other gods. And so God said, I'm sending you into Babylon into a long-term timeout. And when he brings them out, he reminds them through the story of Babylon, I'm in charge. You worship me and no other. And here's the question that Daniel, the author, is putting before the people of Israel, before the people of God, and it's the one I put before you, will you learn? There is a warning in the Bible. It is given to us to make us understand what is at stake. It's there to tell us you don't have to do the same things that the previous generations have done. Turn to God and worship to him. Worship him, humble yourself. And might I say this, to those of you who are children of believers in this room, there is actually a great weight of judgment put upon you by the fact that you've sat here and heard the gospel week in and week out. And you've heard it from your parents. And if you leave the home and you reject these things, understand you are without excuse. You're without excuse. The warning of God has been there. Your parents have warned you. They've said, I sinned in this way and God was merciful. He humbled me in this way. Follow God. Do not reject the warnings of God. And that is the application for Israel. Heed the warning of God. There's due warning for us. Learn from our parents' mistakes and learn from what we see in the word of God. The writing is on the wall and the message has to be made clear by Daniel. But what's the most clear warning the Bible provides us? Yes, there's a warning here in Daniel, but there's an even clearer one in the person and work of Christ Jesus. It's even more profound, and it's an invitation and a warning to all who hear about the cross of Jesus. Jesus is the actual finger on the wall. He is the writing of the wall. Let me say this. Let me, let me see if I can illustrate it this way. He is the warning that we need by telling you the story of the highwayman. It's a poem. It was written in the early 20th century and actually becomes one of the most famous poems of the 20th century. I'm not going to read the poem because none of us know how to read poetry anymore. But we're going to, I'm going to just tell you about the story that's in it. It tells of an adventurer who, well, he's not so much an adventurer. He likes to rob stagecoaches in England. And he robs just the stagecoaches of, of aristocrats. And the daring highwayman, though, falls in love with a local innkeeper, and his, or not the innkeeper, the innkeeper's daughter. And by night, when the coast is clear, after he's done his robbery, he goes and he courts the innkeeper's daughter, and they fall in love with one another. And then one day, though, the authorities are sick and tired of this guy robbing from their aristocrats, and the powerful people say, hey, you guys got to deal with him. And so the authorities come to the inn, and they hear about the courtship of the innkeeper's daughter and this highwayman robbery, and they, they essentially they kidnap her, and they put her in the window of the hotel with her arms tied behind her, and they set up a pistol in such a way that if she moves at all, the pistol will go off right at her chest so that she cannot give fair warning. And they use her as, an, as a lure to bring in the highwaymen. And then the, 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 the poem goes on, that she hears his hooves on the lane, and the soldiers cock their muskets, near to the arms he loves, near to his destruction, it says, the highwayman comes riding. 
Then, just as he is about to enter into the musket range of the soldiers, a premature shot rings out as a warning to him to turn back. The highwayman reins up. He turns his horse, and the frustrated soldiers shoot a futile volley. All the muskets fire, but only one has found its mark. The one shot that was true was the musket, musket fire shot in warning. The musket aimed at the heart of the innkeeper's daughter. In other words, she moved in such a way in order to shout. She was, she was muzzled. But the only way she could communicate warning was to allow her life to be taken. And so it is in the warning of Christ Jesus that God is so adamant about communicating to the world, I am the king. I want you to come home to me. And he said, he said, I am willing to let my son lay down his life to have the gun pointed at his chest and for his life to be taken so that you may know that the king is coming. There at the cross, our Lord demonstrated how great his love is when he sacrificed his life to warn us of the destruction that awaits if we do not sin, if we do not move, remove ourselves from our sin, if we do not come to him in faith. He was not the first warning, Jesus wasn't, but he is the most poignant and the most beautiful because in it we see the kindness of God who comes to stand outside the walls of our life and say, I am a good king. I'm a king of kindness. I come to rule and reign in your life and bring justice and goodness. Do not turn from me any longer. And I'm willing to show you my goodness and my kindness by putting my son to death for your sins. God warned in the running of the wall that we all live in a universe where sin will be punished but the message of the cross completes that warning. This is what sin deserves, death on a cross. And the cross stands as God's ultimate warning of the consequences of sin and yet also his great expression of love for sinners. If God did not love, he would not graciously warn through his son. And the handwriting on the wall of history is written with the blood of Jesus Christ. There is a judgment that has come and it has fallen on him. And so what is compelling is that yes, the blood warns and yes, it cries out, turn to him as king. Turn to him and be atoned for. That is the glory of the blood where it reconciles us to God. And therefore, this is the warning of history. It is written with the blood of Jesus. Listen, you can turn and face the judgment of God one day or you can not turn and face the judgment of God one day or you can cling to him the one who took your judgment and bow the knee to King Jesus. The blood of Christ cries, come, come with your guilt and receive forgiveness. You who have been running a usurping throne and kingdom against God. And when you do, you will not hear the words, many, many, tekel person. He has taken those words for you. Instead, the word that you will hear is, Forgiven. You are forgiven. I'm going to close with this as a means of calling you. It says this in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Paul says this, Do you presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience of God? Do you not know that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? That you'd lay down your throne and lay down your pride and your arrogance and let him into your walls. Open the gates of your city and say, Jesus, flood in. I pray that you would. Let's pray together.
Oh, Heavenly Father, um, I as a man don't take great delight in speaking about your judgments. It doesn't play well, Lord. And I don't take great delight in talking about it. But Lord, I talk about it because I believe it is your kindness. It is your kindness to warn us of what our sins deserve. It is your kindness to warn us that at the end of all things, you will come as judge. You will rule and reign. You will put to right all that is wrong in this world. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that there, those in this room, that they would heed the warning. Lord, I think about my own kids, and I'm saddened that they're not even here this morning. And, Lord, I, I, want the, I pray that the children of this room would not sit back on their laurels and kind of just wait and wait and wait. But, Lord, they would, they would welcome Jesus. They would bow the knee and say, this life is not my own. It belongs to him. I pray that others in this room would do that. That they're filling their life with all the things they can just try to forget the fact that life may end someday. That judgment may be coming and they're using all sorts of things to just distract them from this. Lord, would you, would you bring them to a place where they see that their distractions are doing nothing good for them. That their eyes would be open. That they would see the kindness and the love of Jesus Christ. The one who writes on the wall his love and affection for us. And they would turn and repent. I pray that they do that right now, this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.